At this time, I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26, as we make our way through this uh, book, we're con- uh, currently in the family history of Isaac, and here uh, Isaac takes center stage in this story. Uh, we'll begin reading in verse 1 down to verse 17, so let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former fam- famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called to Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this that you have done? One of the people might have easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And and Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Thus far as the reading of God's word, let us pray that he bless it to us now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and the power that it conveys, for indeed it testifies to us concerning the person and work of Christ Jesus, your Son, our Lord. And so we pray that as your word is proclaimed, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of obedience for all that Christ has done. And we ask all of this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved in the Lord, the older I get, the more I realize that I am just like my father. This despite the fact that as a teenager, I constantly told myself, I'll never be like him. Well, for some reason, whether it's through nature or through nurture or a combination of both, there's no avoiding the fact that like father, like son. Now, this could be a good thing or this could be a bad thing or it could be a combination of both. 
And I think that's exactly what we see in our passage today as we consider Isaac and his interactions with King Abimelech, his uh, sojourning in the land of the, of the Philistines. We see that Isaac is acting just like his father. Some ways are good and some ways are bad. But as we consider the fact that Isaac is being called to walk along the same journey, to tread the same path of faith that his father Abraham uh, did, we see that he hits the same hills and valleys, the same struggles and trials uh, as, uh, as previously. And ultimately, that is going to point us forward to the need for somebody to perform these duties perfectly when, at the end of the day, Isaac will fail and Abraham will fail. Or a passage, uh, uh, another thing to keep in mind, just for context before we get into our passage, most commentators agree that our story, chapter 26, is actually a flashback. We're going back in time to a time before the twin boys, uh, uh, Jacob and Esau, were born. And the most obvious uh, reason to believe that is because how else could Isaac pass off his wife, Rebecca as his sister, if, they have, if twin boys are in the picture. And so it makes much more sense to see chapter 26 as a flashback going back in time, but we see it strategically placed between chapter 25 and chapter 27, uh, both, uh, which both describe Jacob and Esau fighting for that birthright, fighting for that blessing, fighting for that inheritance. And the reason why chapter 26 is right in the middle is because it shows us what they were fighting for. Chapter 26 in our passage today describes the immense and tremendous blessing that God gave to Isaac, the, the, uh, the vast amount of wealth and resources that this man has as a result of the Lord blessing him. And so it was that material wealth that Jacob and Esau, once they were born and grew up, were fighting uh, tooth and nail over. Our passage begins by, by telling us that there was a famine in the land. The land of Palestine is not unlike uh, the land that we live in, Southern California, a land that is very susceptible to drought. I think we often forget that. When we, when we need water, we turn the faucet on or flip on the hose or turn on the shower, and water is going to come out. We forget the fact that we live in the desert. And if it weren't for uh, vast amounts of, of infrastructure to get that water from the Sierra Nevadas and from the Colorado River to our faucets, uh, we would be very dependent upon the rain. And so here is Isaac in the land of Palestine, once again facing a severe food shortage as a result of a famine. And, and, and uh, this is not the first time this has happened. We're reminded that this is another famine from the former famine that took place in the days of Abraham, shortly after he had entered the land of promise. And so we read that Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Now, this is something that his father Abraham had done as well. Uh, but we're not entirely sure if this Abimelech is the same Abimelech as from chapter 20, Abimelech simply means my father is king, and it could be a dynastic title in the same way that Pharaoh was the title that, uh, or uh, with the title that the leader of Egypt would assume. Perhaps here, Abimelech is just a title, 
Or perhaps it is the same man that had interacted with his father Abraham, and if that were the case, he would be quite old by this point. You may recall that Abraham's sojourn in, uh, in Gerar with Abimelech was before Isaac was born. And so this is at least 40 years after the fact. But as previously in chapter 12, when Abraham, having entered into the land of promise, faced a famine, went immediately down to Egypt. Here we see the Lord appearing to Isaac to warn him not to go down to Egypt. Egypt would be a very appealing place to go. Uh, Egypt having the Nile River was not susceptible to, uh, to rain uh, or, or to, to drought and the lack of rain, but rather uh, would be a, a place that you can go that would have this abundant supply of water, And yet the Lord here appears to him for the first time, and actually the only time we read of the Lord appearing to the patriarch Isaac, he appears to him, number one, to warn him, don't go down to Egypt. It's important to keep in mind that Isaac never leaves the land of Canaan. He never leaves the land of promise. And I think that's significant because at the end of the day, his confession is that he is a sojourner in this land that the Lord ultimately will give to his descendants. So he warns him, do not go down to Egypt, but to dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. This, is, this should be very familiar wording. This is the exact wording that the Lord gave Abraham in chapter 12 when he said, I want you to leave your homeland, the, the land of your fathers, the land of the Ur of the Chaldeans, and go to a land of which I shall tell you. So here the Lord, using the same exact wording, asks Isaac to walk by faith and not by sight, to reside in the land of Canaan despite the fact that there is a famine, despite the fact that there is a drought. The Lord says, you go where I tell you to go. Walk by faith and not by sight. And then in the very next verse, he says, sojourn in this land. It's interesting that the Lord tells him, go in the land that I will tell you. And then in the very next breath, he says, stay put. And that's significant because, he, because the Lord, that language, the land of which I shall tell you, is redundant. Ultimately, the Lord could have just said, Isaac, I don't want you to go to Egypt, stay here. But he repeats that same language, the same call of faith to walk in the, to go where I will tell you to go. He's calling Isaac to go on the same journey of faith that his father had gone on. And yet he gives him blessings. He gives him promises. He says, sojourn in this land and I will be with you. Ultimately, the, the, the second reason why the Lord appears to Isaac is not just to warn him not to go down to Egypt, but to bless him and to assure him of his protective presence. He says, I will be with you and I will bless you. And here the Lord reiterates and expands upon the promises and the oath that he had given to his father Abraham. He repeats it and even expands upon it. A clear example of that is seen, uh, is, is seen in, in verse uh, 3 when he says, To you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. Did you notice that? It's plural now. It's not just one land, but it's multiple lands. So here with this expansion... We see this trajectory that ultimately the Apostle Paul picks up in Romans chapter 4 when he says the promise that God gave to Abraham concerning the world, not just the land of Canaan, but the entire cosmos, 
Ultimately, we see as, the, as these promises start off in seed form, they expand. So by the time we get to the new covenant and we see the ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, these promises to Isaac and to his offspring are nothing more or nothing less than the promise of a new heavens and a new earth. And yet the promise is not just to Isaac, but it is to his offspring. Now, the word offspring, or as it is literally in the Hebrew, seed, is one of those words that, depending on the context, can be taken plural or singular. Right? Boys and girls, if you have one seed in your hand, you have a seed in your hand. If you have multiple seed in your hand, right, it's the same, it's the same word depending on the context. Well, if you understand uh, this promise to Isaac and to his offspring, if the physical fulfillment of that promise is in mind, then clearly it must be taken plural. If you're thinking about the children of Israel, who ultimately come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then this promise given to them must be understood in a plural sense. And that's how the NIV renders that, ver- that, that word. It, de- it renders it descendants, to you and to your descendants, with physical Israel in mind. Well, that's one way we can understand it, but the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3 has a different way for us to understand this, this word offspring, and we'll consider that at the conclusion of our sermon. Well, he goes on to give these promises, he, ex- he reiterates, he expands, and he tells Isaac, I'm going to give you and your offspring all of these things. And then in verse 5, he says, because... Or as a result of the fact, verse 5, that Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Did you catch what I just said there? Or what the Lord said to Isaac? That I'm going to send you these blessings. Why? Because Abraham kept my charge and obeyed my commandments. And you may wonder, well, wait a minute. I thought that this was a covenant of grace. I thought Abraham was justified by faith and not by works. What is this language about Abraham obeying God and this blessing coming to Isaac and to his offspring as a result of that? Well, in order for us to understand these things properly, and just to be clear, the Abrahamic covenant is a covenant of grace. And at rock bottom, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of their descendants received the blessings of the covenant through grace alone. And yet with the outworking, the way in which the Abrahamic covenant unfolds through history, we need to recognize that it unfolds in two different phases. And so think about this covenant, the promises that God gives to Abraham and ultimately uh, unfolds throughout redemptive history. Think of it like a layer cake, two layers on this cake. The bottom layer, the, fu- the, the fundamental promises that God is giving to Abraham, which, as I said, are nothing less than the promise of the new heavens and new earth, are only obtainable through faith alone in Christ alone. Paul makes that abundantly clear in Romans chapter 4. How was Abraham justified? Not by works. He was justified by faith. This promise that God would give to him and to his, his descendants, the entire world, the new heavens and new earth, came not through the law, not through works, but by grace alone. He even says that Abraham was justified even before he was circumcised. And so at rock bottom, at that fundamental layer 
of the promises that God is giving to Abraham, the, the ultimate spiritual fulfillment came only through grace. And we see that uh, presented so clearly in chapter 15. As God alone walks through the severed halves, God alone swears that, that, that oath and ultimately shows how he is the one who is going to provide a sacrifice. He is the one who will most uh, uh, certainly make these promises come about. That's the first layer. But the second layer, concerning the physical kingdom of Israel, as a type and shadow of the new heavens and new earth and the people of God dwelling in it, on that historical layer, that came as a result of Abraham's obedience. And so here we see Abraham serving as a type of Christ. His relative obedience serves as the basis for which Israel ultimately will receive the physical land of Canaan and the earthly kingdom that they will enjoy. And we see that uh, clearly, we've already seen this, uh, clearly back in chapter 22, after Abraham had offered up Isaac, his son, or was about to go through with the process, and the Lord stayed his hand and gave him the ram as a substitute, we see the Lord swear that oath. If you look back in chapter 22, the Lord says, beginning in verse 16, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Why? Because you have obeyed my voice. And so specifically speaking, because Abraham offered up was about to offer up his son, because he obeyed there, the Lord used that as a type of the obedience of Christ. And it is through that action of Abraham that his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob and ultimately his physical offspring Israel could thank Abraham for obedience, uh, for, uh, uh, thank his obedience for the fact that they're obtaining this land. You see, Abraham's obedience is not only a type of Christ, but it's also an example that Isaac and uh, ultimately Israel ought to follow. You see, the idea here is not that, good thing Father Abraham obeyed so we can go live however we want. No, the implication is just as Abraham obeyed God, so Isaac ought to obey God. And ultimately, so ought the children of Israel obey God. That's clearly taught back in chapter 18, where the Lord, uh, speaking of Abraham, says in verse 19, For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he had promised him. And so here we see this ultimate design of God, that the redemption of his people includes not just atoning for their sins, but also turning them them into a people for his own special possession who are zealous for good works. They ought to follow Abraham's example, living lives of faith and obedience. And so here we see that clearly communicated to Isaac. 
In the same way that uh, because his father obeyed, he's receiving these blessings. So he too ought to walk in the same footsteps of obedience that his father had done. And we see Isaac do that in verse 6. The Lord says, don't go down to Egypt. Stay in the land in which I will show you. Stay in this land. And so what happens? Verse 6, Isaac obeys. He's settled in Gerar. He's walking by faith and not by sight. He's not going to take the easy way out and go down to Egypt, but he's going to sojourn in the land despite the fact that he's facing a famine. So far, so good. But then we look in the next verse. No sooner had Isaac obeyed the Lord and set out on this journey of faith that he stumbles and commits a serious sin. We read there in verse 7 that when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Sound familiar? Like father, like son. Uh, Abraham had done this not once, but twice. And the, the second time he did it in this same exact location uh, in Gerar with Abimelech, the king. So here we see Isaac falling into that same pattern of disobedience. And this is something that is so just uh, uh, terrible about human nature is that we commit the same sins of our parents. Even though we tell ourselves we're not going to do that, we're not going to act that way, we, fall, we see ourselves falling into that same rut, that same pattern of disobedience. And here we see Isaac make the same fateful, uh, the, the same foolish mistake that his father did. Assuming that there is no fear of God in this place at all and that they will take, they will kill him and take his wife, he lies about her and ultimately is putting himself first and putting his wife in jeopardy and the whole plan of God in jeopardy uh, by uh, risking risking her uh, from being taken uh, by somebody in the land. This despite the fact that the Lord had just reiterated to him Promise swore an oath to him of his protective presence. Isaac feels that he needs to take matters into his own hands to preserve his own life, and so he concocts this very same lie that his father Abraham had told on, uh, on, on multiple occasions. But we read there in verse 8 that when they had been there a long time, so here we see something interesting. Here's a twist from what we hadn't seen before with Abraham and Sarah. On both times that Abraham lied, Sarah was immediately taken into the king's harem. But here we read that they had been there for a long time, and nobody even messes with with Rebekah, showing that Isaac's fears are even more unfounded than than his father's. And on previous occasions, uh, when Sarah had been taken into a pagan king's harem, On both times previously, the Lord supernaturally intervened, sending plagues, closing the wombs of the women within the the household, appearing to King Abimelech and warning him in a vision, uh, telling him, you are a dead man, you've taken another man's wife. On those previous instances, the Lord supernaturally intervened. But here we see the Lord intervene through what we might call ordinary providence. Indeed, Isaac's lie is exposed through a chance glance out the window. King Abimelech looks out the window and he spies Isaac, as the ESV renders it, laughing with his wife. Well, clearly they're doing more than laughing. There's a play on words here with the Hebrew. Uh, We're not told exactly what Abimelech sees, but it's enough for him to know, to deduce, that they're not brother and sister, they're man and wife. 
And here again, we see a play on words with, with Isaac's name. Isaac's name means laughter. And we've seen that a, a, a play off his name multiple times, for example, when Abraham and Isaac are told that they will have a child in their old age. What do they do? They laugh. And ultimately, those, the laughter of incredulity turns into the laughter of joy at Isaac's birth. And so they call him laughter. Another occasion is when Ishmael mocks his brother at his weaning party. It's the same Hebrew word. He was laughing at him, but there he was mocking him. We'll hear another uh, play on words. Uh, Whatever uh, Isaac and Rebekah are doing, laughing, or as the King James renders it, sporting. You've got to appreciate that translation. This, uh, This makes Abimelech very clear that this guy lied to me. And so what does he do? He summons Isaac's, Isaac into his presence. Uh, and here again, we see this man of God being lectured by a pagan king on morality. He says to him, what have you done? What have you done? That's the same exact wording that Abimelech used with Abraham previously, that Pharaoh used with Abraham previously, And ultimately, that's the same wording that God used to Adam and Eve after they ate of the forbidden fruit. What have you done? What were you thinking? He says, somebody might easily have lain with your wife. You would have brought guilt. You would have incurred guilt upon my people. Here we see a basic sense of, of common decency that this pagan king and his people have. This is what is called the fear of God in the Old Covenant. This is a result of what we call common grace, that fallen man is capable of achieving, in a relative sense, the true, the good, and the beautiful. I think oftentimes, as the people of God, we assume that people are worse than they really are. That at the end of the day, they're they're completely depraved, but not utterly depraved. And so here, Isaac is acting by fear and not by faith, And he is thus rebuked by a pagan king for his sinful actions. And we see Abimelech acting in even a more noble manner, uh, acting as a good king when he issues this edict amongst his people, offering special protection for Isaac and Rebekah. Whoever touches her shall die. We see here him bearing not the sword in vain, being a good king, protecting the sojourner who is within his midst. And saying, nobody touch these people. Leave them alone. They have my special protection. And unlike uh, Abraham's time in Egypt, as soon as Pharaoh found out his lie, he, he expelled him from the land. Here we see Isaac, at least for the time being, able to stay in the land of Gerar. Uh, the king Abimelech uh, 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 leaves him untouched. He allows him to stay. And, and this is uh, accordance with what had happened previously with his father Abraham. He was able to stay in that land despite the fact that he had sinned grievously against the king and his people. And while staying in that land, we read in verse 12 that Isaac sowed in that land and he reaped the same year despite the fact that they're having a drought, despite the fact that there is a famine and severe food shortage. We read that Isaac reaped a hundredfold. The best uh, uh, profit you could possibly imagine. He reaped a hundredfold. And so clearly, this is unexpected. Clearly, this is undeserved. 
in light of the fact that Isaac is, is failing in his faith, the Lord nevertheless blesses him tremendously. And the Lord continues to bless him, not just with crops, with a, with a rich bounty, but with, with material resources, with flocks and herds and many servants, so much so that the Philistines are green with envy. They look at him and they think, man, what is it with this guy? He has everything. And they are so envious of him that we read in verse 15 that they begin to sabotage him. They stop up all the wells that his father Abraham had dug. They try to cut off his resources without water, right? Without, without water rights, you're not able to thrive. And so they begin to sabotage him and undercut him. We'll see next week, Lord willing, uh, the way in which Isaac goes about uh, remedying, uh, 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 taking care of this situation. Uh, but ultimately, in verse 16, we read that Abimelech tells Isaac to go away. Not because of the sin that he had committed, but because he is too mighty. It's ironic that Isaac went into Gerar fearing the men of the city. But ultimately, he's kicked out of the city because they fear him. He's become too great. He's become too rich. He's become too powerful. And if this sounds familiar, it's because it should. Because this will happen to Isaac's offspring. The Israelites, when they're in the land of Egypt, what does Pharaoh fear? They're becoming too great. They're becoming too big. They're becoming too mighty. And so here again, we see the Lord's blessing upon Isaac, this material blessing that he gives to him, is ultimately not as a result of his obedience, for it comes to him in the midst of this crisis of faith and disobedience. But this blessing that comes upon Isaac is a result of the obedience of another. It's because of his father's obedience that he receives this blessing. So that should teach us something. Abraham acting as a type of Christ uh, uh, shows us that Christ's obedience is given to us. And it's only because of the, the obedience of Christ, which is imputed to us, that we can stand perfectly righteous before God and receive his blessings. And yet, as we consider this passage, we consider the fact that although Abraham is a type of Christ, he is an imperfect type. He falls so far short. His relative obedience is not worth comparison with the, with the absolute perfect obedience of Christ. And I think that's made clear in our passage as we see Isaac's sin is nothing more than a mere image, a mere copy of the previous sins of his father. So as, as Abraham is extolled on the one hand, we also see this pattern of disobedience that he had set, this fail, the failures in his life being copied by his son Isaac. And ultimately, we see that same pattern being repeated not only in Isaac, but also in Jacob. And not just in Jacob, but in Jacob's 12 sons. And not just in his 12 sons, but the Israelites, the the descendants of Isaac, uh, as as they leave the land of Egypt to receive the promised land, to receive that earthly kingdom as a result of Abraham's obedience. They too are called to walk, to hear God's voice, to keep his charge, to obey his commandments, his statutes, and his laws. That's language that's repeated throughout the law. 
And Moses tells those Israelites, you better obey God's commandments. And if you do, you'll receive blessings. But if you don't, if you disobey God's commandments, his statutes and laws, what will happen? Well, you won't receive blessings, but you will receive curses. And ultimately, you will be expelled from the land. The land will, will vomit you out of its mouth, and you will be scattered throughout the earth. And ultimately, we see there, that pattern of disobedience being repeated amongst the Israelites, not just with that first generation, but with the second generation. And throughout their history, it is a pattern, a cycle of disobedience, of rebellion against God's commands. And ultimately, that did result in them being kicked out of the land. And so how do we reconcile these two things? God's promise of grace to give to us the new heavens and new earth, but also his absolute holy uh, requirement to obey his law perfectly. How do we reconcile those two? Well, ultimately, that is, we are able to reconcile those two in Isaac's offspring. And that gives us back to that promise. Remember, God says, I will give to, to you and to your offspring. And we questioned at the beginning of the sermon, should we consider that singular or should we consider it plural? Well, if you consider Israel in mind, it should, should be plural, and ultimately that offspring failed. But the Apostle Paul gives us another way of understanding this, this in Galatians 3.16 when he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. See, the Apostle Paul gives us the answer. How is it that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled? How is it that God can graciously bestow upon us all things? Well, it's only through Christ Jesus. He alone is the true offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He alone is the one who perfectly obeyed God's voice, who perfectly kept his commandments, his charge, uh, his statutes, and his laws. Jesus said, it was my food to do the will of him who sent me. Uh, He says, I delight to do your your law, O Lord. And so it is only through the perfect obedience of Christ that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled And it is only through faith in him that we receive not only the forgiveness of our sins, but also his righteousness. And moreover, not only has Jesus justified us by faith, but he continues to to make us more and more like him. As we saw in Titus chapter 2, he's redeemed us from all unlawlessness so that we can live however we want. No so that we would be his people, his own special possession, who are zealous for good works. So as we consider the life of Isaac, his journey of faith, and his failures in his journey, let us learn from that example. Let us, be point, uh, let us uh, see how it points us to our need for Christ Jesus and our union with him. Amen? Let's give thanks. Thanks.